The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. You're listening to the Bloomberg Intelligence Podcast. Catch us live weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Apple CarPlay and Android Auto with the Bloomberg Business App. Listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts or watch us live on YouTube. Well, before I went on my little sojourn to Aruba, the Bitcoin ETF was the thing. That was the story. I don't know how it's all been. I do follow... Uh, Eric Balchunas's research on mm-hmm. Bloomberg Intelligence, and so that kind of keeps me up to up to speed here. But let's check in with somebody else who's in this space: Chris Broderson, managing director, Eisner Ampers Business Advisory Group. Chris, talk to us about how important having a spot uh, Bitcoin ETF is to the crypto space and to the ETF space. Sure. So thanks for having me. Um, I think that the importance here is that. Having a spot ETF does a couple of things. Number one, it lends legitimacy to the asset class, um, that it is recognized as a store of value, whether you agree with that or not. It certainly uh, makes it easier to invest. Um, The average retail investor no longer has to worry about things like wallets and key management and custody and things like that. Um, The other thing that it does is it potentially broadens the, the appeal in the ecosystem longer term. So, uh, Paul, since you said, like, you left Friday. That was yes. the day that all the ETFs started trading, and you're back today. So this is what you missed. <laughs> in that first week of trading, spot Bitcoin ETFs in the U.S. saw about $6.5 billion in shares change hands. Wow. That's according to Bloomberg Intelligence data that is much higher than any kind of recorded ETFs pegged to traditional assets. So a lot of people are trading and moving these things around. Chris, do we know who? Oh, I don't, I don't know who. I assume it's largely retail investors. I mean, there has been discussion about the institutional investors, but I think the thing to focus on right now is who's going to participate from a firm perspective. So, for example, Vanguard has said that they're not going to offer these ETFs on their platform, at least not now. Um, over the weekend, I was playing tennis with a registered investment advisor friend, and he said that his firm is in the process of looking at suitability, investor su- suitability, before they decide whether or not they're going to offer these ETFs. So I think over time, you're going to see more and more firms open up their uh, platforms to these ETFs. You know, Chris, before these things even started trading, it seemed like a price war erupted. Everybody's cutting the fees here. What's what's going on here? I mean, I guess it seems like a Bitcoin's a Bitcoin's a Bitcoin. How do I differentiate one ETF from the other? Is it just fees? Well, I think it's fees, but I also think you have to look at the performance of the manager over time and how closely do they track. So if you talk to Mike Novogratz, for example, he'll tell you that his uh, Canadian ETF has the best tracking track record of all the ETFs out there. I can't speak to that. I don't know if it's true, but I think that you have to balance the fees along with the, the track performance of the manager. So, okay, aside from that, um, how many more are you think are going to come? So there's 11 right now. We get a right. lot more, a couple more, because I think the big question everyone has is like, how many of these guys do you actually need? Yeah, I, I heard that uh, said over and over again. And I think that ultimately 
will probably end up with half a dozen or less. Um, I just don't see the need for 13 Bitcoin ETFs at this point. So uh, I guess Bitcoin, there's, there's, there's a lot more to the crypto space than Bitcoin. How about other Absolutely. ETFs for, I don't know, Ethereum or whatever else the kids are tr trading these days? Sure. So um, I know that BlackRock and a couple of others have applied for Ethereum-based ETFs. Um, I don't think that we're going to see anything from the SEC probably until May. But having said that, I think that those ETFs are going to be a much more significant in terms of uphill battle. And the reason I say that is because the SEC has said very uh, staunchly that all cryptos ex-Bitcoin are considered securities. Mm -hmm. So the, these folks that want an Ethereum ETF are going to have to convince the SEC that the underlying Ethereum is not a security and why it should be allowed into an ETF. Um, yep. And that is going to be tricky. And so maybe we just stick with what we have and then go down to uh, a little bit less. Um, can I short this thing? Can I can I put options on it? Can I do anything? When do you guys think that's going to happen? So ProShares has already um, applied to have leveraged and short Bitcoin ETFs. Because Paul uh, would probably be into that. Yeah, that'd be fun. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so that I, I would I would imagine that those will be coming, um, but you can also you know trade uh, in the futures market, Bitcoin, right? So go to the CME mm -hmm. if you want to play futures and options. So, you, you know, Chris, we did get the SEC to approve this and and Gensler, SEC Chairman Gensler was the deciding vote to the positive. But boy, judging by his tweets, he doesn't really seem like he's a supporter here. I mean, is this thing is the SEC spoken? Is this done? Are we never going back to like Gary Gensler coming back and saying, you know what, this really is not what we need here? Well, I can't speak to what's in Chairman Gensler's head. But what I can tell you is that, you know, I think the SEC did this somewhat reluctantly uh, because mm -hmm. their hands were sort of tied by the courts. And I think that the ultimate arbiter of this will be in the court of public opinion. What happens to the price of these Bitco of Bitcoin and Bitcoin ETFs over time? Is it truly a store of value? Is it something that people will uh, look to in times of uncertainty, like digital gold that's been talked about? It, time will tell. I, it, and I wish I had that kind of crystal ball. Yeah, time. And it, it really depends on what time frame, right? Like, is it going to take three, six months to suss out or a lot longer? But Paul, what I think is interesting, too, is if you want to diversify your investment, right? That's the whole idea. Let's diversify. Let's do alternative investment. Do you need 10 percent in Bitcoin mm. or do you need like one yep. percent? Like what? And that's going to make a big difference into the uptake of these guys, too, Paul. Yeah, it's interesting. I think a lot of folks are just saying, um, I want to have some exposure, but a lot of folks are saying, I just don't need it at all because I don't understand it. Chris, I know at Iser Amter, you kind of look at kind of all things fintech, if you will, blockchain. What's the next big thing that you guys are talking to your clients about? Is it just more crypto, better crypto? What's the next big thing you're looking at? I, th I think the the real opportunity longer term is in the tokenization of real world and traditional assets. Crypto is interesting. It certainly has its place. It's not going away anytime soon. But when we look at the efficiency gains and the ability to fundamentally re-architect the middle and back office functions of a number of financial institutions using tokens, I think that that is just going to be a huge, significant opportunity in the future. 
Um, so my I do my taxes with Eisner Amper, just nice. full disclosure. Right. Um, in, inside, I'm like a 90-year-old person, and I don't <laughs> want to pay any taxes, and I want to you know, be really super safe with my investments. Um, what is the best sort of way to utilize my money that doesn't involve paying a boatload of taxes? Like, do I want a Bitcoin ETF from that perspective? Do I want to switch from the GBC Trust to the ETF? Like, do I want to do those things? Well, there's a few reasons why you would want to switch, and and this is not investment advice, Alex. Please uh, understand that. But what I can tell you is that with the ETF, it's much easier to pay your taxes than if you were to own the Bitcoin directly. If you own the Bitcoin directly, now you have basis tracking and a whole bunch of other things that you need to report to the IRS, as opposed to just getting your statement from your ETF provider at the end of the year. All right, Chris, thanks so much for joining us here. Chris Broderson, Managing Director, Eisner Ampers. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. You're listening to the Bloomberg Intelligence Podcast. Catch us live weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Apple CarPlay and Android Auto with the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. All right, I just got back from a wonderful trip down to Aruba, and both ways flow the Boeing 737-900ER. Work like a charm. No problems whatsoever. Okay. All good. Um, it wasn't the max. It was the ER. Um, now I understand that the ER may have some issues here. So I don't know what's going on with, with our good friends at Boeing. When I think Boeing, I think of American engineering ingenuity. But boy, they've had a tough four or five years. Uh, Siddharth Phillip joins us. He's a deputy team leader for global aviation for Bloomberg News. He's in our Bloomberg studios joining us via Zoom. Sid, thanks so much for joining us here. What's going on with Boeing? I mean, it seems like generations we went without dealing with anything. And now it just seems like there's a lot of issues there from an engineering perspective. What do you think is going on? Thanks, Paul. So, yeah, there is a lot of scrutiny over Boeing's manufacturing quality. And the latest sort of scrutiny is on the 737-900ER, which is the previous generation of the Boeing 737, which is sort of predates the MAX that was used on the flight on Jan 5th that had that dramatic blowout of the plug door. The reason why they've expanded this probe is basically the, the, the 900ER uses the same type of uh, plugs on its emergency exits as the one that failed on the Alaska Airlines flight this month. And that's why the FAA has asked airlines that basically operate this type to uh, do sort of for an additional level of safety to sort of have a visual inspection of it to make sure it's properly secured. All right. I had a great flight coming back on my 737-900ER. Plane was great. One problem, a huge problem. Screaming kid, yeah. probably three or four years old, old enough to know better and his parents should know better the entire five-hour flight that's tough it was brutal right and i just went to the parents at the end i was like what do you guys is this your first you did time? oh totally what did they say just as we were leaving i just said you got to do better 
you got to do better. Did, did they ever, did they say they anything? Were, they were not happy with this that. Is, this is the same Paul Amazing. who uh, people in the company here at Bloomberg, when he doesn't like the way they dress, oh, yeah, he calls goes, them out. Goes right like, up to him. You can't wear flip-flops in my well, place of business. Well, for sure. I don't want to see your toes. I really don't want to see your toes. And there has to be you a don't measurement. mess with Paul. Yeah. And also, like, shirt buttons, you need to yeah. not have them low. That's right. all for guys. Anyway, and for girls. Um, so, back on track. Uh, Sid, so... Uh, Boeing made it in to Saturday Night Live over the weekend. When that happens, I feel like that becomes a real issue. Like it's now in the everyday vernacular. It's in the 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 skit of the weekend. Um, how big a PR problem is this really going to be, or do we feel like it's already kind of priced in? Uh, I think it it is priced in, but I mean, essentially, what everyone's looking for and what investors are looking for is basically trying to see how things go from here essentially the max 9 is still not back in service and that's really the key question as to when regulators will approve of the procedure to sort of bring them back into service and also everyone's looking to see what the deliveries look like and whether or not this will have any impact on deliveries of new planes that sort of stretch out into next year because uh, as you know i mean airlines are looking for as much lift as they can as, as much capacity as they can and this is really crucial to determine how this sort of demand goes forward especially at a time when there's a little bit of uncertainty about how the demand is going to play out i mean we've seen revenge travel and we're looking to see sort of indications of how that's going to play out i mean a lot of airlines are going to be reporting earnings in the next couple of days and we shall see what they really talk about outlook so, Sid, I mean, I, I guess the, the reality is this is a duopoly. It's Airbus and it's mm -hmm. Boeing. I can't just say oh, I'm, I'm fed up with Boeing. I'm going to start buying my stuff from Airbus because Airbus has got multi-year you know, backlog. So if you're Boeing, what's job one, do you think? Is it just is it marketing PR or is it actually changing your engineering process, your manufacturing process? I think it's really focusing on quality and building quality. I think that's going to reassure public that essentially their planes are, are safe to fly and also reassure the customers that they don't have to worry about planes being pulled out of service for inspections and sort of the complexity of it and having to restructure your operations based on that complexity. So I think the, the key question is getting to a point where you're assured of the quality of the aircraft and that can sort of give it some stability in terms of airlines are happy, your customers are happy and they're not worried about whether or not they're going to fly out of an aircraft. And I think <laughs> that, that is really step one of it. I mean, that feels like a fair thing. Um, I, had an, I had an aisle seat. I'm okay. Yeah. Uh, okay. Well, good point. Um, <laughs> apparently, Alaska Air is commenting on the 737-900ER door plug um, in an email saying that they find no issues so far uh, in those checks. So that's something. So, Sid, normally... As in before today, I was on TV from 10 to 12 with Guy Johnson on the European close, and apparently there's like a storm and stuff. And I guarantee you, <laughs> this is all he would have been talking about for two hours. So I feel like I need to know about the storm and stuff uh, over in Europe. What's going on with weather? Yeah, so the, there's a, stro a storm, storm Isha, that's disrupting travel, causing power blackouts across northern Europe. There's hurricane force winds that are lashing the sort of northern Europe and the UK and Ireland. And so that's really disrupted travel as well as sort of power supply to various homes in Ireland as well as the UK. And so uh, I think that it's had a really big impact on uh, Schiphol Airport in Amsterdam where they've canceled 130 flights this morning. Mm -hmm. And oh, they've talked awesome. about winds being over 100 kilometers an hour. 
All right, Sid, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, Sid Phillip, Deputy Team Leader of Global Aviation for Bloomberg News. You're listening to the Bloomberg Intelligence Podcast. Catch us live weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Apple CarPlay and Android Auto with the Bloomberg Business app. Listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts or watch us live on YouTube. Let's talk about these markets here. I mean, you know, we started off the first few days of trading selling off and a lot of people said, eh, that makes sense. We had that huge run at the end of the year. But now we found a little bit of stability here. So uh, let's check in and see what some of these professionals are doing. Carol Schleif, uh, she's one of them. She's the chief investment officer for uh, the BMO family office. Carol, thanks so much for joining us here. Um, you know, a lot of folks were starting this year saying, boy, that huge gain we had in the, you know, the last uh, couple of months of 2023. That probably pulled some performance from 2024. A little bit forward here. We're going to be a little bit bumpy here in the beginning. What's your take on kind of that thought? And kind of when you talk to your clients, what are you telling them about 2024. Yeah, we definitely agree that markets got a little over their skis with exuberance in the last couple of months of 2023. Um, but the great part was to see the broadening of it not just being the primary Magnificent Seven, or even if you took it out to 10 or 12 of those top tech names driving the majority of last year's market. So we did think you'd see some pullback in here. We do think for sustainability for markets to behave themselves well again this year you do need to continue to see that broadening out which you really didn't see in the last couple of weeks as things have stabilized but it's not unusual at all when you have that kind of run up going into year end especially at the late trading mm -hmm. volume you would have had between christmas and new years when when a lot of those highs were were approached if you will um, it's not unusual at all to see a kind of reassessment mm -hmm. of that you've also had a pretty major reassessment in terms of timing and quantity of Fed cuts, because a lot of the market right. exuberance in late last year was looking for um, cuts starting in March, which we don't think you'll see. Uh, just to update everybody, Archer Daniels Midland down 22%, oh. most on record. Sure, there are reasons, cutting its outlook. Uh, the CFO on leave, um, there's some issues in the counting practices. But nonetheless, if you miss or get hurt in this market, you can get really, really hurt. Yeah. Carol, do you buy the rip that we've seen over the last couple of days? Do I buy the, I'm sorry. Do you the buy what? the rip? Do you buy the rally? Oh, yeah, I think, I'm not sure it's pulled back necessarily far enough, but with cash on the sidelines, I think it is time because a lot of people have been very comfortable sitting in cash and it's time to start locking in either some positions in the stock market, some longer term, you know, even going out to two, five, five years or a little more in the fixed income markets. We do think you've seen, you'll see that tenure gravitate more towards four and a quarter four and a half percent by the end of the year but it locking in some some potential investments and moving it out of cash where it's been arguably a really great place to sit through much of last year but when the fed gets around to starting to cut you'll see some of the the nice yields on those money market accounts disappear you know, Kyle, when I started on Wall Street in the in the mid 80s, Japan was the bomb. I mean, that was a place that was growing like crazy. If you wanted to further your career on Wall Street, you had to do a stint in the Tokyo office. And then for the last 20 or 30 years, there's been nothing, no growth, no place. Uh, to, and nobody really paid, paid attention to it. Now I'm starting to hear people talk about Japan. I see that in your notes. I even heard Warren Buffett talk about Japan. H how are you thinking about Japan here? 
I think there's been, I too started when Japan Inc. was the cover story <laughs> on Business Week. And I probably still have that cover in my file someplace. But I think then you, as you so aptly noted, we went into 20 or 30 years worth of it trying to rally and come back out and, and disinflation hitting. But there's a lot of things structurally that are going on in Japan right now. And by and large, the globe is underweighted in that very key developed market. But there's a lot of things, um, for example, governance issues going on with publicly held companies there where over half of them are trading below book value. And there's new regulatory oversight saying that you need to get a plan in place. You need outside directors on the board, a plan in place to get those stock prices up. And there's a lot of things structurally going on there that make us very interested in it. And again, the fact that most of the globe is under pretty severely underweighted in Japan because of the fact that it's been 30 years since mm -hmm. they were on, on magazine covers. So yeah, fair enough. Um, and this kind of pairs in with your Fed call too, right? We're all kind of waiting for the BOJ to at least end 0%, right? At least a little bit of a baby hike, but that hasn't happened. You mentioned that the right. Fed isn't gonna be cutting in March. And I'm wondering how you look at the timing of all of this and then how you deal with equities out of it. Well, I think that the piece of it is, is that the, the direction is in the right direction. We think the Fed's done raising. Whether they cut in March or May or June or July, it it it's almost non non um, not as relevant. Non, yeah, exactly. Mm. Sorry, not enough caffeine this morning. It's not as relevant there um, in terms of it's directionally. The Fed most likely is done raising is going to start cutting at some point. And so we think it does tee up a pretty a constructive market. Those who are lending to companies have the opportunity to, okay, now we can firm up our models and figure out what our, our prospects are for the next three to five years. The trend is for more rate cuts. The Fed has ample room in here if our economy does start to tail off. Now they have ample room in here to be able to cut more aggressively at some point if they need to. But you've seen a very healthy market in here that employment numbers out late last week were very solid and, and indicative of markets that are coming into better balance. Consumers are pretty exuberant, investors are, are pretty constructive. But as long as we hopefully get to see a broadening out of mid caps and small caps participating more and more industries other than just technology driving this rally, we think you'll have a pretty reasonable year. All right, Carol, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, appreciate getting a few minutes of your time. Carol Schleif, Chief Investment Officer, BMO family office. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at CutterEconomicForum.com. You're listening to the Bloomberg Intelligence Podcast. Catch us live weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Apple CarPlay and Android Auto with the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. 
We have the New Hampshire primary uh, kicking off tomorrow. And understanding how the election and policies are going to influence all these companies and all these industries is going to be key based on uh, your returns for the end of the year. Joining us now, political news director for Bloomberg TV and radio, Jody Schneider from New Hampshire. Uh, Jody, it's been a very turbulent 24 hours in the political world. What is life there on the ground without DeSantis on the ballot? Yeah, it has been. We got the uh, the news that uh, Ron DeSantis was dropping out yesterday as some of us were about to head to uh, cover a rally of his. <laughs> so that's how kind of sudden it was. And uh, and he, of course, endorsed uh, former President Donald Trump. So that really uh, is kind of making it a harder uh, battle for Nikki Haley. Uh, she is trying to win here in New Hampshire. She needs a very strong showing tomorrow in the primary to stay in this race, to stay competitive against Donald Trump. And that's going to be tough, given that uh, Ron DeSantis, through his support to his former rival, uh, Donald Trump, and also um, they have, we have had some others throw their support, including Tim Scott, the senator from Nikki Haley's home state of South Carolina, who she put into his job. He threw his support as he exited the race, uh, well, actually after he exited the race, to Donald Trump as well. So it's a two-person race, but uh, Donald Trump is certainly the one to beat. So I guess, is there any scenario here where Nikki Haley and her team can claim some type of victory to maybe keep going here? What would be a, I guess, a win? Yeah, a win would be an actual win if <laughs> if, uh, if we had a, a surprise upset and she came in first. If she came in a strong second, uh, Tim, she could uh, claim victory that you know she did well against sort of the the very strong front runner. The uh, problem with that is that South Carolina in a month from now we have Nevada in between, but South Carolina is the next significant race, uh, in the next significant primary contest. And even though she's the former governor, Donald Trump is expected to do very well there, especially with that endorsement from Tim Scott. So this makes it really hard for her. And, the, and unless she does really well tomorrow, uh, the betting is that she will drop out before South Carolina and an embarrassment in her home state. The question mm -hmm. uh, a lot of people are already asking is, will she endorse Donald Trump on her way out? So she has said that she will vote for the Republican nominee, but will her supporters do that? So I'm really curious as to what's going to happen to the independents, to the centrist Republicans and the centrist Democrats if Nikki Haley bails. Where, do you, where are we hearing they're going to go? Yeah, I mean, there won't be much place for them to go in terms of the rest of the primaries. It's, you know, it's feeling like all but inevitable that Donald Trump, unless, again, we have a really surprise upset tomorrow, that he will be the nominee for the party and an early nominee. This will be the earliest, uh, certainly in recent memory, that we've seen the two uh, the two candidates, the general election contenders, determined. The question, I guess, is what happens to them in the fall? Do they maybe cross over and vote for the Democratic nominee, or do they just stay home? And a lot of people think there's going to be a lot of staying home uh, without a Lack of, without much enthusiasm overall for either candidate, and it really will become who can turn out their, their folks. There's also the question of a third-party candidate. We have No Labels, a group that has said that if they uh, if they don't have anybody besides Donald Trump and Joe Biden, that they would look at a third-party candidate. Uh, but there may be some independents that crop up that start to get some resonance given this sort of inevitability and given the fact, as we've seen in polling, that a lot of people would, would prefer somebody other on both sides, Republicans and Democrats, mm -hmm. would prefer somebody other than who they're going to likely get in Donald Trump and Joe Biden. 
So, Jody, what's the thinking in the Beltway these days in Washington about if we do get what seems to be the inevitable Biden versus Trump race in November? How does that go? Who's got the edge? What's the early thinking there? Yeah, again, I think it will be a very close race. People are saying, and people we're talking to here in New Hampshire, uh, political prognosticators, pundits, we call them, um, they are saying it's going to get ugly. It's going to get ugly fast. And it really will be interesting to see if the public, uh, what the public thinks of that and what the polls say. We're also dealing with two men um, quite, you know, older. Uh, the uh, the current president is 81. Donald Trump is 77. Um, you know, you are looking at uh, really a lack of enthusiasm from younger voters, certainly, about what they're seeing. So the question will be, would a third party candidate uh, get some residents or are people just going to sort of hold their nose and uh, vote for the candidate they find the least objectionable? What, and again, we may be looking at a record low turnout, record low participation general election uh, if something doesn't happen to excite voters, because right now they are not excited. Right. It's like, did those centers just stay home, which would be a bizarre turnout, too. Um, Jody, what sort of policies should the market start to pay attention to? Um, Things like making the Trump tax cuts permanent, obviously tariffs on anything being imported into the country. It feels like either way, enormous budget deficits uh, are here to stay, which I know is weird to say when you're also floating a staunch Republican on the ticket. Um, What do we start to pay attention to now? Yeah, I think all those things you mentioned, Alex, are really good points for the markets and investors to start looking at um, as this becomes inevitable that we have Donald Trump versus Joe Biden. We know that both have had a lot of spending on their plates and and some of this was pandemic uh, and, you know, uh, came from the pandemic and those huge the, the paychecks, the, the checks that went to everybody. But um, also on the tariffs, we saw Donald Trump put in place those China tariffs and they have not been removed by Joe Biden. So I think there's some things here that that investors can start thinking about. These are likely to be what we will see uh, with these two men. We will also see how do they work with Congress? Um, that's the other thing we haven't really had much of a chance to talk about. And we will in coming months. Uh, both chambers of Congress are really up for grabs. Hmm. Um, it is widely expected that uh, the the Republicans could lose control of the House, given what happened, uh, particularly with their speaker fights this past year. The Senate, uh, the Democrats there have a harder map uh, to maintain control of the Senate than the Republicans do. So there's a lot of issues there. Who will work well with Congress? Will they get much done? Well, given that backdrop, the, just the calendar, uh, Jody, being election year, what's going to what does congress have to get done don't they have to keep the government open that's kind of important they've got some big bills as it relates to foreign aid which i know being tied to immigration what's the expectation in washington how that might proceed in an election year yeah so they do have to keep the government open they've been able to do these short-term crs and we've had threatened we've had several rounds of threatened uh, shutdowns that we haven't had uh we haven't had that occur yet but they just keep passing these short-term uh continuing resolutions they just passed another one last week that gets us to march uh to right around super tuesday and right around state of the union uh so they do and there there seems to be a lot of talk of trying to get away from this but uh the speaker um speaker johnson you know, has a very uh, narrow path to get things done. He, even if he wants to do things, he has the the 
uh, flank of his party that really keeps pushing for deeper and deeper budget cuts and uh, doesn't want him to work with Democrats, but he needs to work with Democrats. So it's a tough situation. But at the same time, we may see something happen on tax policy. Uh, there's a bill that went through the House Ways and Means Committee. They actually marked it up. They sat down and went through it uh, last week that would provide business tax cuts, making some of those mm -hmm. Trump uh, era tax cuts uh, permanent or extending them. And also the child tax credits that the uh, Biden administration wants to see extended. Uh, that may happen. And if it happens, it would happen pretty quickly because they want to do this, particularly with that child tax credit before the tax filing season uh, gets into full swing. So we may see some tax policy. We may see an immigration bill. Uh, there, we have not had immigration policy changes of any major sense, uh, really, in 20 years, uh, but mm -hmm. they need to get this done. The Republicans are saying they need immigration policy changes before they will even consider uh, extending or, or giving more aid to Ukraine, right. uh, as well as Israel and Taiwan. Jody, thanks a lot. Really appreciate it. Joey Schneider, Bloomberg Political News Director for TV and Radio. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor Q&B. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.